Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Today, we are going to be chatting with Miles Free, a champion of American manufacturing. Miles is the Director of Industry Affairs at PMPA, which stands for Precision Machine Products Association. PMPA has a goal of keeping North American precision machining companies globally competitive through the use of best available information and technology on opportunities. They also assist members with regulatory and government issues, the type of stuff that's hard to dig up and advocate for you on your own. In addition, Miles is a professor at the Walsh University School of Business, where he teaches a quality and performance management course. And he is a co-host of a podcast himself, Speaking of Precision. I'm very excited to learn more about the PMPA and specifically the listserv they have for members, as well as talk about the scary possible change to lockout tagout regulations and why he teaches and what manufacturing folks can learn from in his course. Very relevant topics for shops today. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Miles. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be here. We are very happy you're here. And one of the things that you have done for a while is not only have the podcast is relatively new, but you've been writing blogs. And I was looking at your latest blog, which the blog itself promotes manufacturing excellence in a variety of ways. The latest post was titled Made in America. It's not what you think, which I think was prompted by President Biden's recent speech. And in it, you shared what the different phrases around this mean, made in America. Phrases in addition to that, buy America, buy American, and made in the USA. So could you talk to this and why it's important? Well, 
it, it's important, Jay, because when President signed the executive order, I saw this great outpouring on social media, on LinkedIn especially, that now we have a president who's focused on made in America. And it sounded to me as if the people posting thought that this was going to be some great retail push, that now all U.S. citizens would be buying American-made goods when they go shopping. And as it turns out, that's not at all the case. The, buy a, the Made in America covers federal procurement. So, Miles, when we're talking about Made in America, what does that specifically mean? And what do some of these other phrases mean? Well, when we are conversationally, Made in America would mean Made in America. That's like a common reading mm. of, of the words. But after President Biden's January 25th executive order, his executive order created a new category for federal government purchases called Made in America. And in his order, he says that Made in America laws means all statutes, regulations, rules, and executive orders that relate to federal financial assistance awards or federal procurement. So that includes Buy America and also Buy American. And I'm sorry to put the emphasis on American, but it's pretty difficult by ear to differentiate from those. Mm. So basically, this Made in America covers all government procurement um, and all rules regarding government procurement for Buy America, Buy American, that provides a preference for iron, steel, and other manufactured goods purchased by the government. So there's really no nudges on the commercial side or incentives to use U.S. manufactured components or products in their entirety. This is just about federal buying. This is federal government purchases. Buy America applies only to Federal Transit Administration and Federal Highway Administration spending in their programs. And Buy American can apply to all federal government purchases or procurement for each agency, and that's going to be overseen by OMB and the GAO. Well, let's hope it's a start and that it will trickle down to the commercial side. I know you've probably seen some manufacturing coming back to the U.S. because of the supply chain debacles in 2020, but the government, I think, could do more to incentivize product companies not to go offshore. And well, they can, they can certainly do that. The other claim that's out there that is easily confused with made in America is mm -hmm. made in USA. And that's actually a consumer label requirement. And that's administered by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And made in USA, when your listeners see that on a product, made in USA means that all or virtually all of the product has been made here in America. All the significant parts, all the processing, all the labor that go into that product must be of U.S. origin. So if it has more than what the lawyers call a de minimis amount of foreign content, they can't claim made in USA. So I would still urge everyone to look for made in USA, but they need to understand that this executive order proclaiming made in America didn't really move the needle on consumer economy at all. It, it sounds like the same thing, but it's not. It's magical. All right. Well, I'd like to 
understand a little bit more about your background and what brought you into manufacturing and what you did before you joined the PMPA. Tell us about that. Well, I'll try and keep it brief, Jay. My father worked in the steel mills. His father worked in the steel mills. I put myself through college shoveling iron ore spillage in the steel mills. And I graduated with a a lab science degree. And when I graduated from college, I couldn't get a professional job. And so I went to a headhunter, a recruiter, and normally they're paid by the employer. But I said, hey, I got this brand new degree. (laughs) Why Why don't I have a job? And the recruiter said something to me. It was really, really amazing. He said, Mr. Free, just because you're worth $20 an hour in the labor market doesn't mean you're worth $20 an hour as a chemist. And you have to decide whether you want to be a chemist or you want to be in the labor market. And in the 70s, this was in, back in the 70s, 20 bucks an hour was really good money as a steel worker. There was no way I could dial back my lifestyle and increase my costs to be a professional. So I stayed in the mills and I worked up organically. So I became a glass furnace clerk. The plant got shut down. In Youngstown, I moved as an hourly employee to Lorraine, started shoveling iron ore on the ore docks, became a lime plant clerk. They finally recognized my degree. I became an environmental tester in the Coke plant. We implemented a thing called stage charging which allowed them to keep that Coke plant operating for a couple more years. I got a promotion to lab supervisor, yay. And then after 10.92 years, this was in the 80s, the height of the Japanese quality boom in steel, they let 170, I think 175 supervisors go. I was one of those. And so I went to a cold finish bar plant and started the process again as a uh, plant metallurgist and you know kind of the rest has been history i did a lot of customer calls had to understand my customer process if i was to defend the material against their claim that it was non-performing material i really got to learn a lot about manufacturing processes were used by our customers and I became active in the PMPA for our company. And then as anyone who's been following the steel industry knows, there have been a lot of buyouts and consolidations and plant closings. And I ended up ultimately at Republic as the director for quality and development for eight cold finished plant division prior to joining PMPA. Sounds like you have a lot of process and data analysis background hands-on before you joined PMPA. Absolutely. So one of my favorite solved problems was, and this will show my age, we used to produce a special shape of steel that we sold to Sony. And Mm -hmm. Sony used it to make the frame for uh, what they called their Trinitron TV tube. (laughs) And this frame had special geometry and they would weld the screen. So now we build displays with pixels, but In those days, they had a gun shooting cathode rays at a screen, and they put this metal screen with very precisely located holes, which gave an incredibly sharp picture. Well, as it turns out, they'd get about two bad screens out of a truckload of steel, maybe three or four. 
and could never figure it out. And finally, I was challenged by our executive vice president to figure it out. And I literally walked our process from incoming material through cleaning, straightening, everything, and got to the point where I saw them securing the bars, the bundle with an air tightener for the, for the bands. and saw it roll these square bars just on one end enough to affect one or two welds on a bundle of steel. So wow. yes, data analysis, went back, crunched the math. Yep, that was it. When I went to visit Sony later on, I was given the red carpet tour because I'd made a lot of pain and scrap go away. I like that. It's a good combination of hands-on as well as using those analytical skills. So that's cool. yeah, it's 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 really being present in the process, listening to the process. If if more people would really listen to the process, the process wants to talk to you. And mm -hmm. sometimes that's with your ears, sometimes that's with your eyes. But as I like to tell my MBA students, when you can put your data in rows and columns, it will speak to you. And I would add, if you would agree, it's also listening to the people who are involved in each step of the process. Absolutely. That's, to me, they're the local expert. Yes. Absolutely adore and respect the local expert. They have intimate product knowledge, process knowledge, and insights. I just need to kind of coax it out of them. Couldn't agree more. That's how a lot of innovation happened at Rapid. You went to the PMPA. You were familiar with, with the organization from your work in the steel world. Can you tell us who the PMPA is? Sure. So the PMPA is a trade association. The lawyers call it a 501c6 business league. But we're about 430 companies in the NAICS code 332721 precision turning. We call it precision machining. There's a lot more to the world of precision components these days than spin and bar. Uh, our shops make the components that make everything else run. So you can stamp steel and create a body in the white, but without machined components, it's not gonna be a car. It's not gonna have brakes. It's not gonna have fuel injection. It's not gonna have an engine. It's not gonna have a transmission. So these are high value human safety critical parts and they're produced in large volumes. I mean, we don't just make cars one at a time anymore. So our members have high mix, they have high volume, some have low volume, but the parts that they make make a difference. Medical, automotive, aerospace, military, you name it, there's a precision machine part in, in any technology. And so our shops, have relied on PMPA to be a backstop for them for critical information, whether it's process, regulatory, just any, any kind of information. And we share that information. And we've got about a thousand people, all local experts <laughs> on, on some aspect of our craft on our manufacturing and technical listserv. So if you had a problem with run out or you had a problem with short parts or, you know, I don't, I can imagine any one of a, a, a thousand problems, they could just post on our listserv and my goodness, the answers are just going to astound you. People can't believe it. I want to ask you a whole bunch of questions about the listserv, but before we jump into that, because I know that that could 
chew up the rest of the podcast because there's so much valuable information. One of the things, as we were talking before, is that the average revenue of a shop who is a PMPA member is higher than the average of the sick code. And I thought that was interesting from a data standpoint. And you've analyzed that and you've watched, I think, numbers of shops when they've grown in, in what their revenue was to what they are now. Sure. So so if you went to the U.S. Census and looked up our NAICS code 332721, the last time I, I looked, it was about $4.9 million. Mm-hmm. That's for a, for a shop in our industry. PMPA member shops, last year I did a wage and salary survey for shop operators. And part of the questionnaire was, what is your company sales? Now, this was anonymized, so I couldn't say that company had the sales. But in aggregate, the respondents, I think we had 77 or 78 respondents, were like $11.6 million in sales. Now, the average, according to the U.S. government, I mean, we trust our government, right? $4.9 million. So the average PMPA shop that responded to my survey was 2.4 times the sales of our industry. Now, it's not that shops get successful and say, oh, boy, I want to join a trade association. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. Somebody has a shop. They start up. They have some problems. They talk to a vendor. Vendor says, you know what, PMPA they have people, they, there's a wider community. You can, you can, you can talk and network and, and then they grow, they become more successful. They're not distracted by regulatory issues because we kind of give them a heads up on what they should be paying attention to on this last COVID deal. We created an entire page on our website about the PPP loans, state regulations, state by state, that function didn't exist before. And we created it on the fly. And that is a really good example of how belonging to an association will save you time and money. Because if you have to divert your attention to figure it out on your own, what else could you be doing with your time? That's that's not what you're an expert at. That's not the most valuable use of your time. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, our shops are getting busy. Their lead times are increasing. And they don't have the time or the full-time equivalents to go out and track down all this PPP stuff and everything else that changes. So, you know, we aggregate that information, we share it. And a lot of our members, I mean, 80% of our members were able to take advantage of the PPP program in some fashion. They, you know, they were well-served by PMPA. You mentioned you did a survey and that's part of the services that you get by being a PMPA member, the monthly business trends and benchmarking. So I, I got a couple questions there. First, what do you survey and report on on a regular basis? And why is that useful for a shop? That's really a, a great question. Our uh, monthly business trends report uh, surveys, again, around 80 members participate. And they share their sales and the hours of uh, schedule that they that they schedule. So the actual facts we get are their sales and their hours of scheduled work. So if there's overtime. And then we have four sentiment indicators for the next three months looking forward. What do you mm-hmm. think sales will do? What do you think lead times will do? What's your outlook for employment? 
and what's your outlook for profitability. Now, I think everyone coming through 2020 thought 2020 was just an absolutely terrible year, right? That I mean, would be the perception, yeah. That would be the perception. We've actually done a correlation that says that the average of sales of the first four months of our business trends in actually comes out to what the average for the calendar year is. In March of or April of last year, that correlation, the average of January, February, March, and April came out to 121. I am working on the December end of year business trends report, and the average for the year came out at 119, off half percent from that April number, down 10.5% from last year. No doubt 2020 was not as good as 2019. But interestingly, if we look at the five year average for our business trends report, 2020 was down just 4% from the five-year average. So, And that I love that. You, you guys have been around so long, you can look at longer-term trends, and a shop owner has that data available to them to think about the future. You can balance it against the three-month sentiment with those longer-term numbers. Right. So you had asked, how would that help a, a member company? So it turns out that in December of 2020, our index actually went up three points from 125 to 128. Last year, it went down from 123 to 110. So December is really not a good month. Well, what if your sales guy came in this year and says, hey, sales are up in December. I deserve a new, I don't know, a, a new wood, a Callaway ping or something, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but so did everybody else. So this is a great way to see mm. history, how your peers are doing. And yeah. if you're, you know, moaning and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth and you see everybody else is, you know, living the high life, this is an opportunity to adjust so your, how you're managing. The other thing that we track is we track a three-month and 12-month moving average. And so your statistical audience will say, yes. That's, that's the way you find when a process changes. So when the three-month line crosses the 12-month line, there's been a significant change in the trend. And interestingly, in December, our three-month is crossing upwards, going upwards the 12-month. So we're pulling out of the dive. So our members who see this business trends report, they know that it's probably safe to put a little more on that line of credit and to more training and maybe get some tools and materials ahead because we're going to be busy in the next couple of months. Well, first of all, that's great news. And that's huge for a shop owner to validate probably intuition with the data. Let me put a, let me put out there so you can, you can give a plug to the other members, the shop owners who are not responding to your survey. What do you say to them who aren't contributing this data? Why should they take the time to do so? Well, interestingly, it's an online process. I don't see their data personally. And they get a report where we will actually determine their own personal index. And so if they look at their index and with enough time, they look at their index compared to our index for the broad membership that mm -hmm. is reporting, they can see if they're ahead of the trend, if they're behind the trend, or if they're with the trend. So they actually get like a personal GPS for their business by just answering two questions. How was your sales? What's your hours of uh, overtime? And 
by the way, what do you think's going on for the next three months in profitability, sales, lead time, and employment? So that sounds like this is the type of thing that an administrative person could fill out under the direction of a shop owner. It doesn't have to be time of shop owner themselves yet. I would love to have that personal dashboard compared to the national trends. Absolutely. When you're running ahead, when yeah. you're running ahead or you're outperforming, I mean, that's, that's powerful. And there are many shop owners who are thinking about exiting their business. We've got a lot of baby boomers who are owners. I just was thinking this would be a really powerful data point to show to a buyer, assuming that you are above trends, that you could show that, listen, here's the industry average. We are an above average shop and we've got the data to prove it. And we've been measuring that for years. So- That's absolutely true. That's very compelling. But imagine the flip side of that. If Mm -hmm. you're trying to sell and you're not at that average, if you're not at that level, you now know that you can take action, your outlook and increase. Right. Absolutely. If you are thinking two, three years down the road that that's your plan, you've got time to change and make those numbers look better. Absolutely. But you need to measure it. You got to participate. You know, we provide a way to to participate and give you credible numbers. And like I said, that correlation for that first four months to the end of the year, I ran that, you know, started back in 2003. And the only year it failed was 2012. And in 2012, that was the government shutdown. And we lost September, October, November, Mm. December. And uh, so I exclude that. And when I exclude that, that 2012 year, our correlation coefficients are all above 0.9. I like that. And I want to talk about statistics, but push that off to when we talk about your course that you teach. One of the questions I do have, though, regarding the trends in the benchmarking is you've been doing this for decades now, right? Yes, I, I took it over in, I think, 2006 or 2007. And, but it was being done before? Yes. So, so I, well, my question is, what sort of trends have you seen? Let's say you go back 10, 20 years. How is the industry changing? Are there any observations? Our December business trends report came in at 128. I can remember when 128 was the record for sales in a month up until... 2000 and I'm going to say eight, 2007, 2000, probably 2007, we'd never had a month with the sales of that index over hmm. 128. Our December, our tail dragging month, the worst month of the year seasonally, nobody wants to buy parts. They don't want to pay taxes on it. They don't want them in their inventory. We were at 128, which was a record no more than 10 years ago would have been a very strong month. So do you see more fluctuations in the month-to-month data now than you did maybe a decade or two ago? Well, we certainly did with COVID, but right. otherwise, not so much. Okay, not so, so it's still, still pretty consistent. It, it is. And here's what I think has changed in our industry. Everyone was averse to holding inventory. All of our customers, they were always trying to put that inventory burden on their suppliers. Quite frankly, they're trying to put 
all the burden on their I mean, not a young guy. I've, I've lived through this industry. But this COVID episode has absolutely shown them that they can't manufacture complex engineered products without components. And so those month-long, six-week-long, eight-week-long supply chains, all of a sudden, they're dead in the water. And so what's really interesting to me is we're at 128 in December. That really tells me more about the state of inventories at our customers than it does about the health of the economy or the industry. Nobody has parts. They need it. They need it now. And our shops are agile enough to be able to provide them. There's a lot of, a lot of manufacturing that maybe hasn't recovered, but quite frankly, our shops are, we're, we're running ahead of, uh, ahead of demand because you can't build it without what we make. Our parts mm -hmm. are what make the thing itself work. Well, sounds like 2021 is going to be a good year for part making. We've got almost 50% in our December report. 46% of our respondents expect sales to go up in the next three months. Excellent. Listserv is a incredible part of the service that PMPA offers to the shops. It's been around, well, you can share how long it's been around, but if you can just talk about this in, in detail, Miles, what Listserv is, how it delivers information to the members, how members participate, what the value is. I was blown away when I heard about it. And I think everyone, whether, and this to me is whether you are specifically a shop that would probably fit into the 80 percentile of the shops who are in PMPA or not, there's so much valuable historical data and knowledge contained in this listserv that you could be maybe an injection molder and still find tremendous value in it. So floor is yours, Miles. Just share, please, how this tool works and what it does. So I think to get people in the right frame of mind, I'd like to ask your listeners one question, and that's who do you trust? I think in 2021, the big question for all of us to solve is who do we trust? We've seen the media have take sides. We've seen the government change their opinion on whether something is or isn't personal protective equipment. Who do you trust? And the listservs are in fact that place where you can find trusted information because you know that guy, you sat next to that guy at a tech conference. You know that guy produces great parts for GM or Delphi or, or whoever. You've been in his shop maybe and, and seen that he knows what he's talking about, or you've seen the quality of the answers that they've posted. So the real question is, who do you trust? Do you trust some guy on YouTube making a, a funny video that says, uh, here's how you put oil in your muffler so you'll get a smoother ride? I mean, how do you, I mean, I've seen those videos. I've seen those videos where people are just being punked. Can you describe what listserv is? Sure. So we have, it's, a, it's an email uh, forum is probably the, a way of many people would think about it, but they're organized around topics. So our preeminent one is our manufacturing and technical listserv. So if you had a question about a machining process, about a tool, about material, about how to approach a problem, that's probably where you'd turn. 
On the other hand, if you're the owner of a shop, we have a CEO list where only CEOs are on, and you can talk about issues that are germane to CEOs. We have a human resources list, and believe me, in 2020, that was the most popular list as we help people navigate ADA, all the health regulations regarding the COVID-19, what are the rules for quarantine, and do people get compensated for that? And then we have a corporate one, which is uh, a list that just deals with more business-to-business issues. So it's focused. You don't have to subscribe to all of them, but your HR person probably ought to be on the uh, HR list, and your quality manager should be on the quality list. So we all get a lot of emails. Do you deliver them or is there the option to deliver them once a day, once a week, instead of just them hitting constantly hitting your inbox? How does that work? There is a digest. So you can get them as a digest. It would be daily. <laughs> and quite frankly, the volume on these is pretty light. I mean, the quality listserv in today's zero defects world, the quality listserv doesn't get a lot of traffic anymore. So you know, you might get two or three posts in a month on the quality listserv, if that. The manufacturing and technical listserv, though, it's higher involvement. There may be half a dozen questions asked in a day, maybe only one or two. But the reason why that is such a powerful tool is within an hour, you'll have three or four of your peers, your friends, neighbors in the industry will have already responded to you. So if you look at it tonight at five o'clock, you know, in a digest, you'll collect the collective wisdom that was shared. But I mean, really, it's a timely answer. And this collective wisdom doesn't go away. You shared a story about somebody who, I guess, downloaded an archive onto their PC and how, how, well, they dragged an answer. How far back? They pulled an answer from me from in the early 90s. As a kid, I had done a really pretty impressive science fair project on copper plating. My dad worked in the steel mill. He was an electrician. And so we were putting copper on everything. And he'd bring home samples of temper mill steel and tin plate steel. We just, I learned a lot about plating. Well, as it turns out, that eighth grade science experiment really taught me a lot that was relevant today about plating. Hmm. So our members would have a problem, would encounter a problem with a, a part plating. And I would respond. I'd talk about preparation, talk about cleaning, talk about the surface finish, if there's pits, if there's pits, what could be accumulated in there, all the things that could resist a good adhesion on the plate. Well, one day I get a phone call and this guy's got this email that he had archived and it was my how to look at a plating problem. And it was from over 20 years ago. So these answers are kept I've been told I'm on a lot of hard drives. I won't give you the full quote, but it's pretty. <laughs> well, I think that this is really important because a lot of the material, there is no shelf life. As you just talked about plating, there's certain aspects of plating that just don't change. They're basic chemistry, basic physics. And that is essentially, the listserv is essentially a institutional library of precision machining knowledge. I just think it's so fantastic. It, it is. It's it's knowledge retention. And you're right, the physics doesn't change, but the performers do. Yes. <laughs> if they don't know about 
you know, whether the spots on the parts are round or look like a smear, what that might mean. I mean, they do you, don't know do you have images or videos sometimes attached to these or? Not too often. This, this grew up before, before there was bandwidth. I mean, that's the kind of thing I try and capture on my blog. Gotcha. Do you have any favorite stories on how people have solved tough problems that came from Listserv? I just want to try and give the listeners an example of how it's used. You know, the point of being in, in any trade association is so that we can all be better together, so we can improve our game. And so the things, the stories that I really appreciate aren't so much how I or somebody else helped solve a problem, but how somebody said, hey, I've got a customer, he's in a bind, he needs this left-handed type three thread. I don't have a gauge. My supplier says it's two weeks. Does anybody have one? Somebody will say, give me your UPS number. I'll ship it today. And then the new gauge on order gives the new gauge to the guy who loaned him the old gauge. I see that often. often. That's, really, that's really cool, the collaboration between shops. That is, I mean, you just have to see it. And you know that in, in some cases, these folks are competing they're, they're submitting bids to the same customers. But, you know, on the battlefield where the tool meets the steel, we're all fighting the same battle, and that's heat and friction. And we're going to help help our comrades win that war. I didn't realize that that is a way that the listserv could be used, but absolutely. That, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I just need four feet to make a, make a prototype of the XYZ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, material equipment. Is there anything else you want to add about the listserv? I guess the thing that I would add is that people are incredulous. They're incredulous that people would share trade secrets. And I would just urge people who think, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want them to know that I'm using four degrees rake instead of three and a half. You know what? Get over it. We know. Alpha's figured that out 30 years ago. So, you know, are there secrets? Sure, there are secrets. You know, don't tell me who your customer is. Don't tell me who your ship to is. Right. But you know what? If it's in VAR 36, we all know that the manganese is supposed to be under 0.5. You know, you don't have any magic, magic insight on that. But boy, does the rest of the class know something that might save your job. That's really the point. Because mm -hmm. we do share. We do share. We're all... We are all in this together. Yes, we have quotes to different customers, but at the end of the day, we're working to make manufacturing relevant in North America. And that means everybody wins, not just me. If a listener is excited and is interested in joining PMPA, first of all, what's the website address? PMPA.org. Pretty simple. What is the cost to join? What are the annual dues so the annual dues are based on sales i believe we have a trial offer right now i'm really not the guy to talk about that i'm the guy that's pretty busy answering the manganese level is what it is but but it's it's published on our website and they can they can see that it's it's not tens of thousands of dollars though so. no not not even and to be perfectly honest how many hours at $100 a, a machine hour do you have to be down to have a, an answer come back to you in an hour that gets you back up and running? 
how many hours of downtime avoided to cover a dues investment? It's a good way of looking at it. I've seen it. I've seen I've seen people we're we're like dead in the water. And have you tried this? Have you reset? And mm-hmm. you know, the local expert wins. But mm-hmm. that local expert may be on the West Coast. They may be up upstate New York. Right. It's the wisdom of the industry, not just the crowd, but the industry. Well, sounds to me like it's a no-brainer to be a member of the PMPA. The PMPA, though, is not your only job. You have a side gig as a professor, and you contribute to the MBA curriculum at Walsh University. What course do you teach? I teach uh, two courses, Quality and Performance Management. And I teach a second course called Data Analytics for Business Intelligence. Hmm, That's becoming more relevant. I looked on your LinkedIn profile, and I think it's where this came from. With your quality and performance course, you describe it as helping the shop or the person who is taking the course learn the skills to listen to the voice of your process to discover root causes. I I really liked how that was phrased. So what does that mean in your words? So in in my words, I actually have a a teaching statement where I deny that I'm a teacher. So I deny that teaching happens. If teaching really happened, there'd be no child left behind. Everyone would graduate with honors and we wouldn't have processes to break down incessantly, right? So Mm -hmm. teaching doesn't happen. My job is to help my students transform their practice by opening their eyes to the the process, to seeing the clues, seeing the forces that are at work, and then actually having the courage to do something about that. It doesn't matter if you're a critical thinker, if you don't have the courage to tell the boss, we really need to replace that roller on line three. (laughs) If you're afraid to tell the boss, we need to replace the roller because He needs more uptime, but 30% of the products getting sent over for review. What did you gain? But a lot of people are ruled by fear. And so I try and give my students, I try and transform them to be courageous. When they have the data from the process, be a, a confident spokesperson for the process, advocate for the process, and you'll advocate for quality. And when quality goes up, customers are more happy. You know, you don't have to read everything Peter Drucker wrote to know where that ends. Mm -hmm. That's a happy place. Well, what you are helping folks with is discovering the data because it's a lot easier to go to your boss with data than saying, I think. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the text that we use, interestingly, is the Toyota way and the local expert. I like to call, I don't use the word employee. I call performers, performers. And in the Toyota way, there's a great lesson about go to Gemba and go see it yourself. That's what I did with the Sony problem. And go to Gemba and while you're there, listen to the performer. They know, they can tell you, why do I have to do it this way? Do you have any specific stories, examples, how people have taking the knowledge gained in your course and specifically applied it in a machining application? Not so much in a machining application, but I've had some students in the steel industry and uh, a couple of them, they're 
their project, their final project, they improved yield loss on a particular mill by say three or 4%, just using round numbers. So imagine if you had to scrap every, you know, three pieces out of every hundred or 30 pieces out of every thousand because you had to do a test. Well, these guys figured out how to do the test but keep the material still in the work stream. Mm. So they eliminated the yield loss. You can only imagine how much money that would be. Yeah. I've seen this happen. So during COVID, I was actually teaching an EMBA class and one of the students put together a PPE supply supply utility for their mm-hmm. healthcare organization. Didn't have one before because, you know, the stuff's always coming from UPS. Well, it wasn't coming from <laughs> needed PPE. So, I mean, these are absolute moves the needle, moves of the needle greatly kind of projects. And it's not about the money. To me, you know, yeah, saving a few million dollars for a mill is a good thing, but Imagine the trajectory of that employee, the trajectory of going from, I'm just an understudy, I'm just a supervisor, I'm just a a turn guy, and magically come up with this process improvement that changes the yield loss on the weekly, daily, and monthly report, and changes the bottom line for the company. The promotions come pretty quickly, and I see that on LinkedIn, and that's, to me, that's the real garden I cultivate is watching those students grow in their careers. What it sounds like is you're teaching folks a lot of, about how to use statistics. And it sounds like a pretty dry subject, but when you can apply it in these sort of areas, then it certainly becomes alive. And earlier you mentioned an R value of over 0.9. So pretty basic statistical tool, but I don't really fully comprehend that. Can you just, as an example of this being a tool that is useful that you should know, can you just tell us how that works in regards to the revenue management example that you mentioned? Sure. So I said earlier about 2021 is going to be the year that's about trust. Do we trust the media? Do we trust the government? Do we trust the agencies? Do we trust anything? And that our value really has a mathematical basis, but it it explains how much of the change in the one variable is in fact explained by the other variable. So the uh, change in the end of year average is over 90% explained by the change in the average in the first four months is how Mm. we, so we, I'm not going to get into confidence and confidence. There's a lot of ways we could get confused, but but basically that correlation coefficient explains to us that this is this is real signal. It's not noise. Instead of the change it gives you confidence of correlation. Or the higher the number the let's say that somebody is listening to you here, Miles, and they go, wow, I want to learn more about this. Can they take your E MBA course just as a standalone, or do they have to enroll in Walsh University? It's part of the MBA program, so it's an MBA level course. It's not, you know, it's gotcha. not, a, you know, they're they're still able to pursue, you know, statistics doesn't have to be dry, right? And if you get your data in rows and columns, and then you just noodle around with it, you'll be amazed at the correlations you can find. I did this with inventory a long time ago, and we grew sales of a mill an awful lot because 
I was able to correlate every ton that we added to our, got a hold at a real low level, correlated to 1.2 tons sold in the following month mm. because people would fill out a truckload once they made the initial order, but they wouldn't make the initial order if you didn't have the material. So I was able to establish a clear correlation. Mm. They're still using that data set at uh, Southern Polytechnic. That's a, that's a great point. You can understand the velocity of inventory, both in you should have more inventory of these items and perhaps less inventory of other items. It's exactly right. I mean, it never yeah. stops. It never stops. Right, right. And this is basic. It's like the list survey. This stuff is not going to change. I mean, you can do the math on your cell phone. Yeah. 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 Well, love what you're teaching there and a lot of uses. And I'm sure that people can go online and look for probably free resources specifically on some of these statistical tools. I did want to get into something that was pretty scary to me when you talked about the potential new rules on lockout and tagout. Can you just share that with the listeners so that they are aware of something that they might actually be able to contact their congressperson or senator and say, hey, don't let this happen. What's well, going on? It's, it's not a legislative thing. It's in the agency. They're reviewing the 1910 general industry standard for lockout tagout. And one of my concerns is that in renewing, in reviewing this, that they will take out the, the current existing exemption called the Kershaw exemption. And the Kershaw exemption says that when a task is routine, uh, repetitive, and essential to the uh, operation that you don't have to have a full-on lockout. So for the machining industry, you know, in the old days, we'd grind the tool. It would have one edge, and then you'd have to take it out to sharpen it, and then you'd have to reposition it in a holder, and, and it, it was quite a job. But since the 70s, we have multiple, multiple edge inserts. And so instead of having to take the whole thing out, grind it, all we have to do is use a little Allen wrench, twist the darn thing, put it back, and now we're cutting. It's probably a 20-second, 30-second task. You got the doors open. You've got the power shut off. You insert, put it back, shut the doors, hit the power, and you're making part. If you had to do a lockout, a full lockout, de-energize the machine, walk over to the power switch, throw the switch, put a lock on it, come back, test the lockout, now open the doors and do that. You're looking at losing two or three minutes. Now you say, well, two or three minutes, what's that to a human safety? Well, it's not that they're any safer, but that loss of two minutes, if that happens five times an hour because you're changing that insert edge every 10 or 12 minutes or every 15 minutes, you've just lost four to 12 minutes out of your production time. And if your production time is only 80%, anyhow, if you're a good shop, I mean, how much time do you have left to, to pay? So if we lose this Kershaw exemption, I'm very concerned that American shops will be non-competitive with foreign bidders on precision machine components because mm -hmm. that requirement alone, when we change an insert, is going to cost us maybe 20, 25% of our operational time in a day. It doesn't seem like it, but it's, I lose 
three or four, you know, that's that's not statistics. I'm sure that China's not going to require their manufacturers to do that. Well, they don't. They didn't. PMPA did a study mission to China in 2003. There have been a lot of changes since then, of course, but never saw eye protection, never saw a lockout tagout. Right. They don't even have the lockout tagout. <laughs> and what was interesting on, on the door in one lab, I saw, I saw a picture of this beautiful woman wearing a splendid white, satiny, silky dress and her arms upstretched as if to the heavens. And I asked our guide, I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's a safety poster. Now, imagine a beautiful woman in a shapely, satiny dress reaching to the sky. I said, well, what does it say? And he couldn't explain it exactly, but basically it was praying for safety. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, keep us safe. In the meantime, no eye protection. You know, they don't, yeah, they don't even do the basics or some of those countries, yeah. I had a picture of a guy running a stamping press. There were no guards, there were no gates, there were no no detection for hands. The electrical box, there's, oh, it's open, there's wires coming out. I mean, <laughs> it would have been a, an emergency shutdown call if OSHA had seen it. It was just routine. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Miles. I really appreciate you coming on and I want to end by thanking you for the commitment you have made in your life to making American manufacturers more competitive. And I'm sure that you have contributed to so many shops that have grown, become more efficient, more profitable, partly because of the information you personally have put together and correlated at the PMPA example, your, your blog and your podcast, you're just extending the knowledge. The industry needs people like you supporting us. We can't do it alone. And, and I'll compare you to the glue, to glue, binding us all together. So it was really illuminating talking to you about listserv, some of the other stuff. Listserv, that's just such an incredible tool. Again, my perspective is even if you aren't in the necessarily the primary category of PMPA members. The, the, the examples you gave on plating, there's so many other processes that use plating. What would you be able to recoup your investment in this association by accessing the historical data and having the ability to collaborate with other members? So cost of uh, lack of quality is a problem yeah. everywhere. And yeah. that's the kind of thing we address there. Yeah, the, ar the archived information is worth the price of admission by itself. So is there anything we didn't cover you want to get out to our listeners? Well, I, I, I guess, Jay, I'd, I would like to put out that we do a podcast ourselves. It's yes. called The Precision, Monday with Miles. It's on all the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, Amazon. You can also find it on our website at pmpa.org. I have a discipline like you. We put out an episode every Monday. We put out an interview with someone in our industry every 10th uh, episode. So it's not just one person's voice, but, and we've had some tremendous interviews. We had, I think it was our 10th episode. We did an interview with Scott Wiltsey at Fanomatic, and he talked about, they measured their absenteeism in hours per year. Wow. First, wow. First. And that is a wow. And that's that's the kind of wow that you get when you yeah. listen to your peers at PMPA. 
And it turns out that Scott's opinion is that high absenteeism has nothing to do with the performer, but everything to do with lousy policies in our shop. And all I can say is that's just one of the five interviews we have with thought leaders in our industry collected so far. But we, we cover safety. I'm kind of committed and focused on safety. Regulatory issues continue to be an issue. The executive order on declaring face masks to, to now be personal protective equipment when OSHA said they weren't, that's a real issue for our shops. We talk about management uh, issues, current events. Again, we're on all the major platforms and we have fun. We have fun doing it. And it's information that's worth your time. They can find the podcast on the PMPA website, or as you said, all the that's the right. Platforms. How do people find you? How do they find me? It's the best just, way to reach you. They just send me an email. If, if they're a member, they, they have my email. And quite frankly, on all my emails, I put my cell phone number because if a member's got a problem and I have a potential solution, time's a wasting. So PMPA members have around the clock access. We get this report in our email. It's called My Analytics. And I think of it as spyware, but it says it's <laughs> for you. And, you know, every time I get it, it says you have zero downtime. You answer emails on your off time. Well, yeah, I do. If people have a need, I'm going to help them. Well, really enjoyed this conversation, Miles. Thank you again. And I have to admit that Rapid didn't do a good enough job working with organizations such as the PMPA. And mostly because I didn't take the time to understand what value you brought to the table. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have Miles on today. Maybe the PMPA is not right for you, but there has to be another organization out there, local or national, that would help you not be an island as a job shop, as a manufacturer, but build that bridge to other shops. Because as Mile pointed out with the loaning of tools or materials, it's really not other shops who are your competition. It's the non-US shops who are. Alrighty, it's a wrap. Until right. next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting. Smile and have a great day. <laughs>